Welcome from Iractive. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your digital and media editor. This week, we take a critical look at the AI Act. For an overview on all things digital in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website Euractive.com. This is Euractive's Digital Brief Podcast. Today I'm with uh, Lillian Edwards, Professor of Law, Information and Society at the University of Newcastle and expert legal advisor at the Ada Lovelace Institute. Hello, Lillian. Hi. Thank you for joining us. So you have been uh, working on a paper about the AI Act. Um, Can you give us an overview of what you see as the critical points about this proposal? Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Um, the point the point of the paper is to be able to generally criticise the Act, um, not just in terms of things that might go in as amendments, but generally criticising it as a global model for all the countries out there, including the UK where I am, that may also be looking at um, modifying it, editing it and critiquing it. So we came up with four particular points that we think need addressed in the AI Act, either in the process or as a global model. Um, Firstly, we think that it derives too closely from the model for product safety uh, in existing EU law, um, because AI is not a product. AI is a process, is a system, a life cycle in which AI moves and is changed dynamically through multiple hands. And we don't really feel that that life cycle is being captured by the Act. Um, a second point that attaches to this is that users in the conventional sense, um, those impacted by AI systems, those affected, um, have almost no voice of complaint or um, redress attack within the act. And we feel that that uh, is not a good idea, particularly when you look at the GDPR, where users have driven uh, many of the the changes in it. Um, Thirdly, the act um, revolves around classifications of AI systems, particularly as prohibited or unacceptable risk. That's where a lot of the controversy lies. Um, But also the bulk of the act is about high risk systems, systems that are categorized as high risk. And in both these cases, prohibited and high risk, the lists of systems that go into uh, these categories are essentially arbitrary. They are not defined by criteria. You know, there's no way in which you can review the lists and go, well, that system should be in there, that system shouldn't be in there. And we think that this is unacceptably arbitrary and makes the whole idea of the act as risk-based, which is a a very common term, Um, it makes it rather illusory. And the fourth point, which is dear to the heart of the Ada Lovelace Institute, who I'm advising, is that although we do have a set of kind of technical mandates that high-risk AI has got to meet to be certified as compliant with the Act. What we don't have is a general fundamental rights impact assessment at the start of the process, nor indeed a wider impact assessment that might take account other interests like those of groups or society or the environment, right? And we think that 
although that may be difficult to get into the current process, that's something that really ought to be looked at for this as a global model ongoing. A lot to elaborate there. Uh, I would like to start with your first point, actually, because uh, from what you're saying, if I understand what you're saying, is that we are looking at a technology that is completely new uh, using all lenses. Um, indeed, as you say, this is largely drawing from the product safety uh, regulation in the EU. Um, how, what are you proposing? How can this uh, process and life cycle of AI system be better captured in the regulation? Well, there's a variety of points here. I mean, one big issue relates to what is being called general purpose AI. Um, which is AI that has no one intended use, um, notably large language models such as GPT-3, which might be then used, uh, packed in as AI as a service perhaps, into lots of downstream systems, so used to generate text from speech or speech from text or to translate or to provide voice assistance, yeah? And the Act deals really badly with this, with this idea of a general purpose system that can then be incorporated in various ways downstream. And indeed, I think this is going to be one of the big areas for fighting over in the Act as it goes forward. Because right now there's a compromise that's been presented by, I think, the Slovenian presidency, which almost completely exculpates the top level creator. So that's mostly the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts making things like um, open AI products. Uh, they really get a get out of jail free card because the claim is that they don't know how their system will be used downstream. But on the other hand, if you look at the downstream users, they have a lot less power. They may have no access to the training sets and the testing sets of the upstream large language model, say. So they have very little power to make to get that AI right, to make it compliant as it moves through different packages, different services. So that really is one very key example, I think, that shows that we need a different, a different approach than looking, as the act really does right now, simply generally at the top stream manufacturer that's making one particular product that's got one particular intended use, like say automated hiring or you know biometric categorization or whatever. AI is both more subtle and more complex than that. And indeed, as you anticipate, the scope in particular for what concerns uh, general purpose AI is one of the key uh, discussion points uh, right now. Um, so moving on to the user role yeah, in all of this, how can policymakers better involve users in this regulation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. That, that's one we devote quite a lot of time to in our paper. So, I mean, there's various points of inflection, if you like, where users could get involved and right now don't, yeah? If you had some kind of ex-ante impact assessment, then you could have users there, right? That, that's often something that's done in domestic, uh, corporate impact assessments or assessments under the GDPR, though it's not required, you could have users more involved in setting the technical standards that are going to be built um, by Sen and Senelec to implement those technical mandates I was talking about for high-risk AI. 
and you could notably give a uh, give users more rights of complaint at the end of the cycle if you like or at least mid-cycle when something's gone wrong when a group becomes aware that they're discriminated against say by a, fa a facial recognition system that doesn't work well on black people or female people right um i'm very pleased to see that in the notes we've got from uh the rapporteurs from imco and live that they're talking about adding the AI Act to the representative actions regulation that might be coming out from the EU. So what we want is for users to have rights, as they do in the GDPR in most states, to form groups to take representative actions about particular problems for particular users, because that's proving to be a really powerful um, tool. Yeah, well, maybe the GDPR is also not the best um, example in terms of uh, implementation. But uh, moving on to what you uh, said on high risk uh, and the, the fact that this list of high risk system is so central to this regulation, but yet there is no uh, rationale for the current list. Basically means that this list has been uh, drafted on political reasoning. So we can really expect uh, the negotiation between the colleges later to go back and forth on this. Um, if you make this political, where does it stop, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's been my argument. I think it is very bad that this is such a politicized um, choice. You can kind of see it for prohibited um, AI, though there too I would like to see criteria because, you know, this whole issue of biometric surveillance of facial recognition by the police is so incredibly political uh, and controversial. But for high risk, what we're now seeing is really a kind of jumble sale of people bringing their favourite problem, you know. So now we're talking about adding, the rapporteurs have said that they're talking about adding systems that interact with children, um, medical treatment systems, insurance systems, deep fakes, and algorithms that affect the democratic process, such as electronic voting uh, machines. You know, where do you start? Tomorrow something else, some scandal will happen and someone will say, oh, we need to add this. So, I mean, where we sit right now is that there is a process, though it will take a very long time and I suspect be very underused if used at all, for the Commission to add new systems under existing categories of high risk. But that's very restrictive, you know. Um, tomorrow we find out that, you know, systems that are recommender algorithms, for example, which feature nowhere in the Act, really need to be included in high risk. And I would argue they should be there already. And yet we haven't got a process for adding that in a rational way, right? What we have got, if you look, this is my little creed occur, in Article 7.2, is we already have a very good list of criteria for why systems might be regarded as high risk. And I don't see why that couldn't be used, at least as a starting point for a, a qualitative section article saying what should go into high risk systems. And I guess you could also make the same argument for prohibited uh, practices. I mean, these have been selected based on uh, so-called unacceptable risks. But what do we mean for unacceptable risk? Do you have an answer to that? No, no, I really don't. 
Um, I think uh, you could go back to the work that was done in the Travaux Preparatoire and also in Germany and try and see what is defined as an unacceptable risk to fundamental rights, drawing on um, European uh, Convention on Human Rights Jurisprudence, for example. But I do agree that in the end, I think these are very political choices. I mean, the argument about to what degree face recognition, particularly in use by the police, is going to be banned is going to be a very political one, you know, so that's going to be hard to pin down. On the other hand, predictive policing, which many people want brought into pro prohibited practices, I think it could be possible to analyse applications of predictive policing and try and work out when it's acceptable and when it isn't. We do have things like case law and jurisprudence on that. So, you know, I think the jury is slightly more out on unacceptable risk, but for high risk, I think we should definitely be looking at reviewable, challengeable, you know, justiciable criteria. In your paper, you also criticize the risk assessment uh, part of the, of the proposal. What are your concerns in this regard? Well, yeah, I'm not sure. Risk assessment can be used in two different ways there. I mean, one is, do, does it fall into unacceptable or high risk, which we've discussed? But I think you mean the idea of whether systems um, are regarded as having satisfactorily proven that they don't pose a risk, yeah? So that's really the parts of the high risk uh, sections of the Act, which say that it's got to meet the, 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 the rules of Chapter 2, which say things like you've got to prove that the data that's gone into your training sets and your testing sets are of particular quality. You've got to prove that it's possible for there to be human oversight exercised over the system uh, when it's put into use. So these are a good start. These are what I would call a good start, right? Um, and they certainly do match with good practice that's come out of various uh, member states. But they really, really don't go far enough. And as I say, we looked uh, in some detail at whether an ex-ante initial impact assessment should be imposed. And I think there is a strong argument for that. And indeed, that's the line the Council of Europe seemed to be going down in their treaty, at least on, on what we initially have. Um, the problem with that within the AI Act as it stands right now is if you put in an initial impact assessment and you keep Chapter 2, then you might have what's seen as a very, very uh, burdensome set of compliance processes, for particularly for SMEs. And if you went to my point about how there ought to be a qualitative assessment of whether a system is high risk, then you might be adding three stages, you know, a high risk assessment uh, an impact assessment, and then meeting chapter two. And that would be very, very burdensome. So the problem is at this stage of the AI Act, and maybe it's not too late, maybe I'm being unduly pessimistic, uh, it would take a lot of work within the commission proposal to put all these um, elements in together, as it were. Lillian Edwards is Professor of Law, Information and Society at the University of Newcastle and Expert Legal Advisor at the ADA Loveless Institute. Thank you, Lillian. Thanks. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Digital Brief newsletter to receive a comprehensive overview on all things digital in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Amazon Music. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening.